What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and we are going to bring back a show from the archives that I think was a really interesting show who was talking about how someone becomes an impulsive spender and how those around you impact or influencing what you do, your habits, your spending habits, all sorts of things. We've received quite a few emails recently that kind of you know, really should be discussed through the show in a show like this versus me just answering some one-off questions because there's some behavioral things that are coming into play. And I think if you guys know and understand those, it might help you out when it comes to looking at well, what's around you and who you associate yourself with. The anonymous foundation that last year had given out a total of $65,000 came back and is giving away $50,000 in scholarships to 10 lucky medical students. So do the math, that is $5,000 to each winner. And this is again, our second year doing this. And we've been running this on social and in our groups, and you guys have already seen it through emails, but we're really excited to be offering this again. This is not me giving away the 50,000. I wish that was the case, but I am so thrilled and blessed that a anonymous foundation is giving this money away. So the deadline had already passed, but we're going to announce the winners on the 31st. And I'm really excited to be doing that. Special thank you also to Comp Health. There's a lot of podcasts out there, Murder Mysteries, Breaking News. Yes, that's even a podcast about garden gnomes. But instead, you're here learning about how to be the best physician you can be, which I think is a smart move from a financial standpoint. But do you know what else is a smart move? That's working a locum tenens assignment with Comp Health, today's sponsor. I know you're thinking you already have a job, and that's the best part. You can work flexible locum assignments on the side for extra income. Or you can work locums full-time too. We're going to be talking a lot about that next month. And on top of all of that, locums almost always pays more on average. So head to financialresidency.com slash comp health and see what locums can do for you financially. Our link is also in the description of the show you're listening to us in right now. All right, let's jump in with our guest, Jennifer McDermott. Jennifer, I am so excited to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Of course. Well, we met on the floor of FinCon, which was super fun. And we started talking and all of a sudden we were kind of nerding out on some numbers of some of the things you guys are building. I was like, we've got to have you on the show. I've never talked about this stuff. So I want to jump right in and let's talk about impulse spending. Obviously, I'm going to preface a lot of this here as we go along. We're going to talk about impulse spending credit card rewards and and actually credit card fraud. So let's dump it to impulse spending. How often do Americans overspend in the research studies that you guys have done? Pretty much all of us are prone to doing this at some point. So when we looked at online spending as well as spending in stores, close to 96% of Americans are prone to spending impulsively. Now, when it's online, it's 88.6%, but pretty, pretty high numbers for, for how many people are doing it. And this can happen at any point. You know, there are people who admit to online spending once a day, and then there are people who, who only do it once a month, but it is pretty frequent. Yikes. Once a day, that would be a little terrifying to be that person <laughs> or to see that person's finances. Um, exactly. In your studies, did you guys figure out what are these people actually splurging on? And if it's everyone, I mean, I can, I know where I kind of splurge on, but I'm curious, like, where does everyone else kind of splurge on? Please make me feel normal. 
you are normal. You absolutely are normal, but you know, we can all be better. The average amount that people are spending per session is $81.75. These things could be clothes, it could be a big food purchase, concert tickets, you name it. But basically, I think what was really interesting about the figures were looking at the triggers. So it's not necessarily the item that people are attracted to, it's a certain trigger that makes them purchase impulsively. So the number one trigger was missing out on a deal. So seeing those big sale signs and limited time only, those kind of things inspire us to buy. So it doesn't really matter the item, it's the fact that we feel like we're going to have FOMO, we're going to miss out if we don't purchase now. After that was there's no good reason not to make the purchase. So that kind of why not treat yourself type mentality. Being unsure about the purchase, people worry that, you know, it might not be there tomorrow. So not sure I can always return it. That's another trigger. And then feeling pressured to make the purchase, whether it's by a friend you're shopping with or, you know, we've all been in stores before and had those pushy clerks telling us we look great in an item and, and we should buy it now. And that's another trigger, but the least likely one. That's interesting. So if, if someone told me I look good in something, I might buy, actually buy it. That really doesn't happen, unfortunately. So <laughs> if we're looking at FOMO is a big deal and then the, the YOLO mentality is a big deal. And now I've talked on actually on some other episodes about just looking at what other people are doing and what other people are buying. It makes sense, but it's weird that kind of like the number one thing was the marketing pitch of it of like, this is the sale. I, I, I kind of figured it was kind of like the, maybe your number two or choice, but it was how they reference it. And obviously there's you know, billions of dollars that goes into research and marketing and trying to figure out human emotion and behavior. Was it more of a male thing or a female thing? Was it by region? Is it people on the wrong coast, which I identify that as everyone east of Nevada? <laughs> or is it like an age thing? Like, I'm, I'm curious, like where, you know, where did this kind of play out? Yeah, it's actually quite interesting. The numbers are pretty close. I mean, it's something that we're all really prone to do, whether we're um, male, female, older, from a younger generation. Interestingly, men, I think people often think that women are more, you know, susceptible to impulsive shopping and can't help themselves in the store. But actually, more men than women admitted to impulsively spending. The figures there were 67% of men admit to it compared to women. And that's looking at, at just online. And then men were actually more than double as likely than women to have a daily impulsive shopping. So you asked earlier about the frequency. Wow. So women actually do impulsive shop, but they're less likely to do it at the frequency that men do. Um, and men also spend more money on the impulsive shopping session. So women are spending on average $70, close to $71 on their impulsive shopping, whereas men are spending $105, just over $105. So a significant difference there in terms of, of expenditure as well. We're looking at age. It's millennials. Millennials are the most likely to have a daily online shopping habit. And, you know, you can put that down to social media and, and how the keeping up with the Joneses has, I guess, been proliferated with Instagram and, and other social media channels and young generations feeling they need to keep up. Mm -hmm. And we talked a lot on a previous show with Sarah Fala, the author of The Next Millionaire Next Door on keeping up with the Joneses. So for those listening, if you haven't listened to that show, it's a really good one. I actually, you know, hearing you say this, I think it's funny because I would have thought it was males that, and, and, and I know I've read the post, but I actually thought it was males that would overspend or impulse, excuse me, impulse shop because mm -hmm. we don't ever have the like, at least I'm thinking of the females that I know in my life and the males that I know in my life. 
the females are very driven. They're smart, but they're like, I'm going to the mall to do this. or I'm going to go here to buy this. Like, it's not like so much of an impulse. Whereas like, I'm like, I never want to shop. So if I see something, I'm like, oh, okay, maybe it fits in with what I want at the time. But I would consider almost all of my shopping impulse shopping at that mm-hmm. point, because I don't ever think like I need to go shop. That isn't just how I think. So I don't know, maybe it's the bias on my side, but you guys did something interesting and you actually pulled the emotion around impulse shopping. So what'd you guys uh, find there? Yeah, and we were really interested once we sort of delved into the triggers for impulse shopping, we were really interested in what people were feeling after the fact. So are we happy with, with our impulse purchases? And what we found was no. The main emotion people are feeling after impulse spending is feelings of regret. So that's 44.5% of people who impulse shop. That's the number one thing they're feeling after they've spent their money. Following that is contentment. So there are people who are impulse shopping and maybe it gives them that rush and they are addicted into that new purchase. So that was following closely behind at at 42%. And then 31% felt indifferent. So it didn't really bother them. Maybe you mentioned when you go shopping, it's not really planned. So you, you don't really see it as an impulse shopping, but it hasn't been planned. It is on the spur of the moment. So you don't really think about it once you've made the purchase, you walk away, you've got a new top, whatever. There's that indifference. And then this is a bit surprising and close to 20%, so 18.9% felt as though they didn't have enough um, money after they'd spent. So they were worried about their rent, tuition, loan repayments or something else they actually needed the money for. So I guess that ties into those feelings of regret, but there's actually that concern that they've spent money they didn't really have the money for. That actually ties into what I'm thinking with millennials as well, right? Mm. The ones that have all that student debt burden. You know, it's not necessarily, you know, the Gen Xers that have it. It's the some Gen Ys, but also some millennials. So I I think that actually makes sense. Absolutely. And then finally, 10% of people experienced a fight with a spouse or family member. So there's some real tension there when it comes to impulsive spending. We see a lot of other studies around financial infidelity and people, you know, we make a joke about people hiding purchases from their partners, but yeah, it actually can lead to to tension in a relationship for 10% of people. Yeah, that makes sense. I've actually hidden a, a purchase from my wife before and it's only the Christmas present. She listens. She's my biggest forced fan is what I, <laughs> I, I called on the show, but I, I do it in every once in a while. I say, hey, honey, what do you want for Christmas? And then I, I end up usually doing something, but then I always get something different. I have my other card that I use to do it so she can't see because she <laughs> houses like all of our stuff, the Amazon, everything. So it's like she knows everything I order. So it's it's hard to hide things, but I only do it at Christmas. So when we talked about impulse shopping here at the beginning and I was like, well, I know what I splurge on. And this is kind of the next piece here is cost of convenience. Some people sit here and be like, oh, you're a planner. You should never have problems with finances it's like no I'm human too like I still maybe I don't blow my finances up and have it be horrible but you know I still impulse stuff and I'm sure my wife does as well but one of the things that I impulse is I'm working really hard and I don't necessarily want to go make something for dinner or for lunch and so I will go out to eat or have something potentially delivered if my wife gets home and she doesn't want to cook and I don't want to cook then Oh, look, it's Postmates getting delivered. So that would be kind of my main thing. But let's talk about cost of convenience spending. What does that technically consider? What falls into that bucket? And how much are people spending on it? 
Sure. So we looked at convenience spending, you know, I think Postmates, Uber Eats, a whole bunch of those type of services. Anything that you could do yourself, but you were paying somebody else to do is what we would call falls under the cost, the convenience bucket. Almost half of Americans are spending on services such as these. So 46% of people um, in our studies that they spend on services such as delivery services, driving, handy worker around the house, whether it's cleaners or someone to come and put up a shelf pet needs, so groomers and walkers, and subscription boxes we also put into this bucket. So things such as like HelloFresh, where you get all your food and recipes mm. cut up and, and portioned out. Yeah, we tried Blue Apron once and it was fun for a little bit. And then you realize like it's not that cost effective and it doesn't, <laughs> it didn't save that much time. And then it was like, ah, oh, we're not doing that anymore. So I'm exactly. curious. Okay. So impulse shopping was actually more male driven. Is mm-hmm. cost of convenience, is there a male, female or again, a region or age? Is there differences here? Yes. So again, the men spend more on cost of convenience. Oh, we're over two guys. <laughs> so they're spending more than 50% more than women on food delivery. Food delivery is a very popular one. So I feel like you're are- saying that because I told you what mine was. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the numbers don't lie, Ryan. That's um, my numbers guy. <laughs> I agree. Um, so when it comes to food delivery, they're not too different. Men will spend on average $77 where women are spending $51 and this is on a monthly basis. Whereas when it comes to subscription services, so your HelloFresh, Rent the One Ray, BarkBox, men are spending a lot more. So women are spending $7 and men are spending $24 on a monthly basis. So you know, over three times the amount. Was there an age difference between the cost and convenience? Because now I can kind of see technology playing a big role in cost of convenience like these some of these things so i could see millennials maybe being higher oh, that's correct the way i would walk through this in my head is that correct that's correct yeah gen y the most likely to spend money on the convenience services so they're spending on average 41 dollars per month compared to baby boomers who are spending 20 dollars per month and gen x are 13 I think that technology has a lot to do with the younger generation leading the charge and convenience services. They are very used to instant gratification. They're very used to having, you know, many, many apps on their phone. So a car is a tap away. A new meal is a tap away. They're probably less inclined. They don't really come from that generation of you cook everything from scratch. I think that's where the subscription boxes have, have become kind of fun lately because it's bringing back those cooking skills and it's making it a bit fun. But I think that technology is a huge driver of Gen Y being the biggest generation to use these services. Yeah, I mean, that makes logical sense. So Mm -hmm. we've covered impulse shopping and Mm -hmm. now we've talked about some cost of convenience factors. Let's go into those that chase points. And Mm -hmm. I had a show with Holly Johnson a while back talking about credit card rewards. And Mm -hmm. it was a phenomenal show because she is so knowledgeable on if you're going to shop, Here's the places and the cards you should use it on in order to do these purchases. But I look at it and I I actually get this all the time with clients. Oh, well, I use a card for everything because I get points. Sometimes I look at this and I say, you know, the best way to to save money, a lot of times it's, you know, I, I look at, you know, there's credit card debt and other things. I think first, if you have credit card debt, don't chase points. It's just ridiculous. You're trying to get two points to pay them 20%. But from those that even pay off their debt, if you don't go after the two cents on the dollar, the 2% cash back or whatever that might be, you and you save the dollar, that's your best return on it. But that's clearly after reading your guys's case study, 
not the case that anyone else thinks that way. So how many people are like spending and in, in accumulating points unnecessarily? Sure. So almost one in three, it's almost one in three. So 29.2% of Americans are using their credit card solely for the points that they're generating. So this means that they might not need to purchase something, but like you said, think, oh, I can get the points and, and not actually weighing up the value benefit of the points versus having that money still in their pocket. That's really interesting. Yeah, you had some stats and I want to read off two of them here because I, I thought it was pretty amazing. It was estimated $175 billion is spent chasing points mm-hmm. and 29% have spent money using a credit card just because it was a rewards program attached to it. And that just blows my mind. Do you know in your guys' study here what most people were likely to spend like the money on, like what were they frivolously chasing points for? Sure. So the number one thing that people are buying to chase those points are clothing and and accessories. So that was 89.4%, which when you think about it, probably aren't necessarily necessities. And then followed by food and drinks and then household items. But clothes and accessories, they're probably the things that are are totaling the highest amount and, and generate the biggest amount of points, I would say. What's weird is when I looked at your guys' studies and I mm-hmm. said, okay, if we were trying to analyze the average person and the you know clothing, I knew clothing was first because I've read it, but I thought maybe that would have been due to impulse shopping, right? And seeing how these could be interrelated. And it probably comes down to these deals like, you know, the FOMO or the, you know, oh, this is 30% off or buy one, get one 20% off and things like that. So, uh, you know, I was kind of expecting it, but at the same time, I'm not, a, I'm, I don't buy really clothes. So it's still hard for me to associate with it. But is this a male, female thing or a region or an age? How do those numbers come out? Do guys mess up again here? <laughs> I wish I had a different story for you. But yes, men sure. are slightly <laughs> more inclined to be chasing points than women. So 27.6% of women use their cards solely to get the points compared to 30.9% of men. So those are quite close figures. It's when we look at how much they're spending that it's mm. quite a difference. Men are spending almost double that of women. So women are spending, when they're chasing these points, this is, we're talking over a period of time, women are spending just over $1,800 where men are spending just over 3000 So it's quite a significant difference. So it was a double whammy. We mm-hmm. screwed up not only once, but twice. Good job, <laughs> <That's right>. guys. <laughs> big bummer. Okay. And that begs the question to like, are these programs actually worth it? I look at it and say, if you're going to spend it's actually a necessity and you have the ability to pay it off in full. Like you could have paid this in cash and you have some self-restraint. Yes, you can use a credit card and do this. I personally, I put everything on a credit card. I know I want, I have it in cash. I could pay for it any time. And two, the points are nice when I know I'm never going to carry a balance. And I I do have self-discipline to not blow this up. But did you guys ask anyone or look at the details and say like, were these actually worth it for people? We didn't go into the individual programs they're using. And I guess it can be quite subjective. But as you said, if people aren't paying off their credit cards in full, 
then they're not getting the value from these programs. To get any value, you have to be really gaming the system. And it takes a lot of understanding the different values of things, understanding different terms and conditions. You can definitely get a lot of benefits from rewards programs. There's no doubt about it. But if you don't have the capacity to pay back what you're charging, then you are losing for sure. Yeah, you instantly basically lose. So let's say that I fall in this category that I will use credit cards. Is there a program that's kind of a favorite with all you you guys there that analyzes stuff that you're like, hey, this is a cool app or program or whatever it might be to, to track something? Yeah, there are so many different apps. There's always an app for everything. Of course. But it can help you track them. So uh, Wallaby is one favorite of ours. So you can connect your credit card accounts to, to track your spending, how much you owe, your total line of credit, and where your next bill is due. So it really keeps you organized and it gives you real-time alerts on where you can shop to maximize credit card points as well. It can categorize your purchases, so looking at what you're most likely to spend. So, you know, if you're spending a certain amount at the grocery store every week, it will help you maximize those purchases that you're making every week anyway to make sure you're getting the best cash back or points back on those. That's interesting. I mean, I know there's all sorts of AI and and things like that, but Wallaby, I've actually never heard of it, so I'll actually go check it out and do some due diligence on it myself. So we've talked about how people spend, where they're spending, and some of these numbers and going into it, but we haven't talked about the scams, the the Mm -hmm. massive amounts of fraud that's out there. I've had two clients in 2018 be the victims of fraud. I was the victim of fraud in 2016 with one of our cards. They they ended up charging $400 within about 20 minutes to two different gas stations in town Mm. until the credit card company called me and was like, are you doing this? I'm like, have I ever spent more than just gas at a gas station? Like, no, that's not me. So what are some of the big stats around credit card fraud, credit card scams? It's very, very common. So nearly 42% of US cardholders have fallen victim to credit card fraud. And it does come in a lot of different shapes and sizes. So it could be somebody trying to charge a card. It could be, you know, to the extent of ID theft, but it is extensive and it's resulted in an estimated, from our study, $136 billion in collective fraudulent charges. So you had 400 here, multiply that across all the people that have experienced it and all the money that has been fraudulently charged. It's a lot, significant amount. So that hundred and some billion that you just said, is that per year? That is, yes, in the 12 month period that we conducted this study. That is insane how much mm-hmm. money that is. What are some of the ways to find out if you've been a victim of fraud, right? So I wouldn't have known this unless, you know, Chase called me or whatever bank or institution you're using maybe could call. But other than hoping and praying that they're going to call you, like what are some of the other ways to find out if you're a victim of fraud? Checking your statements. I think most banks have apps that can attach your account. I think that people should be very vigilant with checking their statements. So we actually asked people who had experienced fraud how they found out. We were really fascinated to find out how people were being alerted to this. And 46% of people were notified by their bank. So that's a good amount, but that's still not accounting for a lot of people if they hadn't checked 
there could have been charges that would have gone unchecked and could have led to larger amounts being taken. So 46% checked their own statements and saw that there was some unusual activity being conducted. And then 8% had to suffer the humiliation, I guess, of being declined um, at checkout. And if you don't have another card, imagine with all your groceries, you have the kids waiting as well, and then to be told that your card's declined. And that's because there's been a block put on it or it's been maxed out from fraudulent behavior. So it's it's a smaller amount, but it's definitely not something that anybody wants to experience. No, that would be terrible. I look at it and I, I actually use Credit Karma. It's the free app that monitors credit. And I put it on my phone and my wife's phone, logged us in. And when Credit Karma alerts and gets an alert of like a new card. So this wouldn't help if someone like copied your card or you lost your wallet or whatever, but if someone tries to open up credit in your name, it's actually alerts you really quick and it's free in order to, I know there's tons of paid ones. What are some of the ways that to protect yourself from fraud? I guess, you know, I mentioned ensuring that you had apps and you're checking your statements regularly. That's one of the best things that you can do. I think being aware of the type of scams that are out there, what type of phishing scams, you know, looking out for emails, if anything looks suspicious, whether you receive an email asking you for your details, check with the retailer or check with your bank if this is something that's legitimate. Log out of your accounts always. There are a lot of things now in the digital age that make it as convenient as possible for us to online bank and shop. You can set your details in an online store so that it's just one click to purchase, which the retailers obviously love. I just say never, ever have your details stored anywhere. It takes an extra minute if you're purchasing something to enter your details again, but it just means that your data is not stored anywhere that could be hacked. Those are some of the, the the major things. I think shredding your documents, your important documents with, with information, it can seem a bit next level, but it doesn't take long. A shredder is so inexpensive and it just means that, you know, anybody who's suspicious coming past, finding a credit card statement, finding your details, that they don't have access to that information. Yeah. I mean, it's normal business practice for me to shred stuff, but even before, you know, my own firm, even in college i was that guy that liked to shred it because i mean you never know where stuff's gonna go always kind of worry me i'd be more comfortable with online stuff but yes logging out it definitely makes sense but if the banks are only catching this half the time that's really scary because it's the other half like you're catching it on your own and most people are oblivious to this part of me was saying was hoping and i knew you wouldn't but when you say like what are ways to protect yourself you're just like oh don't impulse shop and i'm like yes (laughs) but i knew that wasn't going to come out Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people hear more about you guys and what you're doing? And just tell us a little bit more about Finder. Sure. So Finder is a personal finance comparison website. So what we do is provide comparisons across personal finance products from credit cards and personal loans, money transfers, shopping deals, you name it, any kind of personal finance product. We we give consumers all the different options for them to make the best decisions with their money. What we do is do a lot of these studies to try and delve into our spending and saving behaviors so that we can help people identify different problems and, you know, help them get out of debt and help them make better choices all around. Yeah, you guys have tons of these um, on here. These are just a couple that I was like, I've never talked on these and these were really interesting. So, of course, I'll link to these in the show notes, financialresidency.com. But thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate your time. All right, everyone. Well, I appreciate you being here. Remember that this is not financial insurance, any other type of advice we can actually think of. 
This is educational learning, helpful tips and tricks. Really appreciate you guys being here. And thank you so much. Have a great week. And I will catch you next week. Cheers. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye.